Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another edition of Leadership Lean In Podcast, where we are leaning in to the subject of leadership. We have a fantastic episode for you today. I'm going to be joined by none other than Pastor Erwin McManus in just a moment. Couple of things before we get started. Number one, thank you to everybody that has subscribed on our YouTube channel on Spotify, on Apple Music. Thank you for sharing, commenting. It means the world to myself and our team. By the way, what do you think about our new studio? We have turned the office into the new Leadership Lean In studio. Also, help I work with people. Getting good at influence, leadership, and people skills is coming out next week. Have you pre-ordered your copy? If not, grab one for you and your team. This book, you're going to want to bring your whole team through it. And so make sure you grab uh, either the whole uh, bundle package or one for yourself. Give uh, one to a family member. But we're very excited about the book. Also, we're doing weekly leadership emails. You can subscribe for that uh, on chadveach.org. Also, last thing, we're doing webinars. You're like, uh, what's a webinar? Webinars are they're fantastic we've done one on communication one on people skills we got another one coming up in august don't miss it okay enough of the business let's get to the good stuff none other than pastor erwin mcmanus the author the thinker the communicator the basketball enthusiast enthusiast the enthusiast he is the greatest and uh, a dear friend i love his family i love his church i love mosaic msc we just, we're big fans, and we've been talking about doing this for so long. It is such an honor. Put your hands together from wherever you're streaming in from. Pastor Erwin McManus is in the house today. Let's go. Thank you so much for being here. This is unbelievable. Man, I'm so glad to come, Chad. You've been asking me for so long. I'm so glad to finally be able to make it over here. We've been talking about doing this for a long time. So thank you, thank you, thank you. It took a a pandemic. It took a pandemic. We had to be quarantined to get together. I love it. (laughs) Um, I have so much respect for you and what you've built, who you are. You know, the first, I was trying to think about the first time I ever heard of you was when Barbarian's Way came out. Hmm. My father read it and gave it to me. Wow. This would have been in 2003, 2000. Somewhere there, yeah. Somewhere in that era. Yep. And and then uh, maybe like a year or two later, uh, all my roommates, I remember all my roommates every Monday would watch the Mosaic service from the day before. You guys were putting this out. <laughs> this is in 2004, 2005. Wow. That's amazing. So you've made such a tremendous impact on my life for so many years. Mm-hmm. And to get to know you and to know your kids and... Just and to now be in the same city is an unbelievable treat, delight, all the above. And now we're doing a podcast together. That's awesome. How are you feeling? So good. I feel good. I feel good. It's great to see your space. You've done a great job with your offices. You guys are just oozing creativity and joy, which is really a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Well, we're going to get to creativity. I want to ask you going off of 2000. In fact, actually, even before Barbarian's Way, I remember because I was in El Monte for years. And I think maybe you were had a location in Whittier. Uh, we had kind of a rogue location in yes, Whittier. Yes, I remember this yeah. years ago. Yeah. So again, I've heard about you for years, yeah. long before I ever got to meet you. How have you been able to, I'm going to use the word, stay relevant or be relevant? How am I still alive at my age? Yeah, not alive. <laughs> but I just feel like something that we talk yeah. about, I say we meaning like Rich and I would talk about, hey, you're not going to be relevant forever. That's just kind of a thought that we maybe 
shouldn't have, but are fearful of that we've had this window of, you know, traveling and speaking maybe, but you just would defy that whole thought that we're afraid of that (laughs) you've stayed relevant for three decades. You've been like, I remember you doing Catalyst when Catalyst first started and Mm -hmm. books and who you, but I feel like the first uh, speaker at Passion. Yeah, it's, it's like, it's, there you go, right? So it's just like, it's like, how have you been able to, and one of the things that impresses me about you is that you're, you're never reaching for that, or maybe that's not even on your radar. I don't, I mean, I don't, maybe it is, I don't, but but when I say that, how have you been able to be, not in the ministry, because a lot of people are still in the ministry, right? but you're a relevant voice, influence, leader in culture and in faith. How have you been able to do that? It's funny when you say that, it makes me think, I think it was something Judah Smith said to me about how his friends are coming up to you and go, hey, who's this new guy, Urban McManus? <laughs> right, 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 right. And he's like, new guy? New guy. Yeah, been? We were listening to him in high school and junior yeah, high. Right, 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 right. right. Uh, well, I think there's maybe like several things. One is that I wasn't relevant 20 years ago. Um, I was trying to call the church into a future that mm. they didn't want to go into. Wow. And, and so there's so much of what I've seen over 40 years now where um, if you're trapped in the moment you're in, if you're trying to be super popular right. and to fit in perfectly into this moment, you kind of destine yourself to being irrelevant. Wow. If you press to the future yep. uh, of any arena, whether it's the church or business, economics, uh, sports. Great. Um, yeah, I, I, rem- uh, I don't know if you remember, there was a conference called the Southwest Conference yeah. for football. Yes. Yeah. And all basically all the teams were Texas teams plus yeah. um, two, two teams outside of Texas. And they refused to change. Mm. And that's why the conference no longer exists. And you, you can see that conferences thrived and, and conferences disappeared in the same sport. And it's the same way with the church. And uh, because what, what I, I think is interesting is when you say your dad passed me the book, or the, the barbarian wife passed you the book, most dads didn't read me. Wow. So your dad was actually pretty rare. Yeah. And uh, the pastors who were my peers, because I, I turned 62 this August, um, my, the pastors were my peers did not, um, did not connect to me. Mm. They didn't like my books. They didn't like my message. They didn't like the way we did life or ministry or church and wow and in fact many of them would have seen me as a heretic and 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 now uh many of them have come back and said hey we're so sorry for the way we related to you or treated you or talked about you back then and i said i know you were just trying to protect your children from me and uh but the truth is you're trying to protect your children from the future that was coming wow and and so i think the key to being relevant is not uh, being trapped in the moment you're in right but being connected to the future that needs to be created that is such a good answer. And you could see that clearly very visible from your life and your church. Your church would exude that. Um, I always feel like, in fact, your conference was something in regards to the future last year. What was it? Yeah, I, the future of. The future of. Yeah. Such a great title. And I'll, yeah. I'll always look at your conference as kind of a hallmark for even the aesthetic of where church is going. Yeah. That's just kind of, you You exude that from your, your life in ministry. I feel like one of the things that is very relevant about you is that you always have your pulse on creativity at large. Mm-hmm. You know, like we're, most yeah. people are like looking within their industry at what's that church doing? Right, right. And you're like studying like all, like tastemakers and food and culture. How is that LA? Like, where did you get that attraction to creativity at large? You know, the moment we start talking about creativity, a lot of people almost like turn their minds onto, oh, this is supplemental. Wow. This is for artists or for people who are a little bit more fringe and everything like that. 
And so if I could just give a real practical, like yeah. tangible application, we've been in the middle of the entire Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. We've been dealing with these whole issues of social justice and cultural inequity. Mm. And people are talking about what do you do to, besides protesting? Yeah. You know, how do you create a world where um, those who have been um, disenfranchised are actually elevated? Mm. And um, over 30 years ago, I started a church in Dallas in a predominantly black community and uh, was there for almost 10 years. But my last act of being there was on a Sunday morning, um, moving the church to receive my resignation. And I put an African-American leader as the pastor of the church. And then I put another African-American or black American, you know, the language has changed, right, you, right, you right. know, and, but they would describe themselves interesting enough as African-American, which is interesting, right, you know, right. so I, I realize it's not just me that, you know, and trying to figure out what is the right designation at times. Right. But these black men, there were several of them, are still in leadership of that church 30 years later. And we did that. Uh, I did that when I was 29 years old. And I didn't do it because of protests or social movements. I didn't do it because there was cultural pressure. We did that because we knew that was the future. And so when people started asking me during the Black Lives Matter, well, what's your position? What are you going to do? I'm going, well, what do you mean what I'm going to do? You're, you're 26. This is all new to you. Yeah. We, we, we did this uh, 30 years ago. Right. We created a model uh, where even the government from D.C. came to that church to do all their interviews and research for how to end poverty and the drug issues uh, in the urban poor. And, and, um, and William Bennett, who was drug czar, came to our church at that time and uh, recommended by the city of Dallas. And I was still the senior pastor and Chris Simmons was emerging. Mm. I, he started as a member, became an intern, came on our staff. I eventually made him co-pastor. And, and it was right before he became senior pastor because I knew what I was gonna do. Mm. And when William Bennett came, I didn't show up that day. And I made sure that Chris was the one hosting uh, William Bennett and all the city officials that were talking about racism, poverty, uh, the drug problem. And, and I wanted to be there. You know, I, I put in the sweat equity, deserves to be there. Right, I right. started that church from scratch. And, yeah. and, um, but I also knew that um, a part of leadership is relinquishing power. Mm. And that the greatest act of leadership you'll ever make is the one where you're not in the room. Right. And, and, and I, and so I use it as an example because when people hear about Mosaic being creative, they always thought, oh yeah, you're one of the first churches with dancers. Yeah. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're one of the first churches that, and I'm not talking about whatever those ribbon dancers are. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> you know, right. I never understood why Christianity <laughs> did that. And, you know, we were, we we're probably the first church in the world that was editing films and using in the middle of our messaging. We were probably the first church in the world that was using installations in the middle of our experiences. And um, I mean, I I was influenced by Rod Sterling in Night Gallery and Twilight Zone when I was younger. And and so I saw myself as walking through an installation of creativity and beauty in the middle of my messages. And we would create those pieces that allowed the message to progress. We did so many things that no one else was, was doing, so we didn't have a benchmark. Right. And we did a lot of them wrong. It, it, right. You know, and uh, but but I never wanted anyone to treat creativity as something shallow, because mm. we were also creative in the way we dealt with racial racial reconciliation. We were also creative in the way we dealt with uh, serving the poor. We we're also really creative in the way we did our, our global work across the world. Wow. And 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 so I, I I wanted to start there because the moments one hears the word creativity, they go to superficiality. Mm. And I actually think that creativity is the deepest level of of. The profound expe- expression of being human. Wow. 
Wow. And, and so I didn't look at Mosaic as just an artistic church. The arts were simply a metaphor great. for human creativity. That's great. And, but but it, is a, it was an anthropological shift. Uh, I know I'm using a big word there. That's, a, that's, that's great. I like it. Liked it. Now, it's going to stand out right there. That um, I had um, come to a conclusion that every human being was creative. Now that's normal. But I was considered a heretic for believing that. And I had massive opposition to this idea that every human being is creative. I was told, you're putting undue pressure on people by saying everyone's creative. I was told, no, uh, humans are like worker bees. They just need an assignment, and then they're fulfilled. And, and even from uh, like the top theological minds, wow. um, and, and both in the secular world and in the world of believing. In fact, uh, Jordan Peterson, uh, who you may not, no. you may be familiar with, a philosopher okay. uh, out of, uh, I think, Toronto and um, He's recently come out saying, uh, um, there, there are some people who said, everyone's creative, that's me. Yeah. And he said, but it's just not true. There's only a small percentage of people who are creative. It's still the more um, prevalent view of human essence. And so when I wrote The Artist and Soul, it, yeah. it was a declaration, it's a manifesto on human creativity that wow. every human being is creative. This is intrinsic to who we are. And that in fact, all um, human um, engagement is actually materializing the invisible into the visible. Wow. That it, 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 we actually have the ability to what we describe only for God. Wow. That we can actually translate the invisible into the visible. So everything, this microphone, this table, um, your book, help, I work with people. This was an idea inside of your mind before it became ink on paper. Yep. And so everything that you see in this room, everything that you experience as a human being, is actually a manifestation of the human imagination, mm. and which is why you need to pay attention to what you're imagining, yep. because we are creative beings intrinsically. Wow! So in the same way that bees create hives and ants yep. create colonies, and and uh, humans create futures. Mm. I believe it. So I, I would say you know, and you probably get in all your interviews and podcasts, mm -hmm. you would get the creative question. I mean, yeah. you're known as the creative, you're very fashion forward. You speak very, very fluently and insightfully on creativity, just as you just did. And then I would say the other thing that I would think of for you is besides being a brilliant thinker, you bring people into faith that most people can't bring into faith. Mm -hmm. That this is just a skill. It's a gift. It's a grace. It's it's a God-given talent. It's an ability. How and I and I feel like this is kind of what you're going for, which is interesting <laughs> because most people in our world, in our little cul-de-sac, are just kind of satisfied here. Mm -hmm. And statistics would say that, would prove that yeah. we're just kind of cycling through the same people. And I feel like you're on this trajectory and bend to go i'm going to reach people nobody else is reaching where did that come from and what is what are some thoughts that you have on reaching people and bringing them into faith sure well i have the great advantage of growing up irreligious <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> you know and i do think if you grow up in the church you're sort of at a disadvantage and if you go into ministry early you're even more at disadvantage mm. and because you become popular because you know the language of your people there you go. and you know how to communicate with inspiration and passion and, and, and insight even. Um, but the world without Jesus is a different language. Wow. And so I, I, I think a part of it is I didn't grow up with like your language, yeah. you, you know, and I, I grew up with the language of a person who doesn't have God. Mm. And then when I became a follower of Christ, 
um, I was immediately like put into the incubator to try to Christianize me. And we don't mean to do that, but we no, do. Sure. And so what ends up happening a lot of times is when a person comes to faith, they become almost like hyper-Christian. Yep. They use such churchy, Christian-y language that they yep. become worse than the person who grew up in church. Jeez. And and I, I think a part of what happened to me is I just didn't um, enculturate well. <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and Some that, people are so jealous of that. <laughs> and, and I... And I um, and all my, uh, so many of my friends were people who did not believe in God. And so when I came to L.A., I, I, was, I was never trying to create a safe place for Christians. Like, and for, for many, many years, it, it was pretty impossible to join our church as a Christian. And uh, I had many seasons of my life where uh, if you were a believer, you were not allowed to come. And, uh, and we, I would do many events where I would have bouncers at the door, and if you're a Christian, you can come in. And... I found that once the ratio increased of Christians to non-Christians, it became a, a highly Christian event, and that people without Jesus would no longer feel comfortable being in the room. So it was not an easy decision, because I, I would always tell myself, oh, I could grow this church really fast if I did this, you know, if I just uh, used all the biblical language and used all the biblical sure. catchphrases and, 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 and had the right kind of experience that Christians are looking for. And I just decided that I would rather be seen as unsuccessful because I'm actually trying to play a completely different game. Wow. You, you know, and if you, you know, I mean, I'm from El Salvador, so football was actually a sport you play with your feet, which makes sense, football, right? <laughs> you, you know, and then you come to the States and football is something you play with your hands. Right, right. But if you're an American, you think that it's stupid to call soccer football. Right. And I think what happened is I, I, I did get... Uh, uh, immersed in this culture. My stepdad insisted I play American football. Uh, they never allowed me to play soccer because they were going to make me an American. And so I played American football even though I'm from El Salvador and my body is designed for soccer. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and, uh, I'm really tall for Salvadorian. I mean, I'm like wow. a giant. And, and uh, you know, and both my brother and I, when we started playing soccer in college, we instantly found, oh, wow, we're better at soccer having played one day than football all of our lives. <laughs> and, and see, I think what happens is that we take people who are actually really good at being in, in an unbelieving secular world, and we say, no, you've been playing the wrong sport. You need to come here and learn the language of, of the people of Jesus, of, the, of Christians. And, and, um, and as you can tell, I'm so not even comfortable using Christian language. Right. And, um, and, and so I, I, I actually think my art form is words. And I felt like Christianity had lost the art of words. Right. In that... Uh, sermons became repetitive and redundant. We became really good at saying the same thing over again, and that's how people would cheer us on. I, w I went to Australia one time years ago to speak at a huge um, event um, with people you would know and everything like that. And, and as we're driving to the event, one of the hosts was saying to me, now, when you speak truth, everyone's going to really respond. Like Our, our people are, are geared toward responding whenever you speak truth. And I said, do you mean whenever I say something they already believe? that they'll really respond. He goes, yes. I said, yeah, that doesn't really happen with me. Like, you know, when I speak truth, it's probably gonna go quiet. Wow. And they're not gonna be sure if it's truth or heresy. And it may be a day or a week or a month or a year or 10 years later that what I say will actually find its way into their soul. Wow. And, and I just think it's really hard as a preacher to not preach for the applause. 
Totally. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's because yeah, yeah, it it's, it's, it's human nature. Absolutely. And, you know, as a preacher, as a communicator, that story, we would, you know, it, it, listen, I grew up in it. it like you're saying, I'm, I would be the poster child of that. And as a preacher, you're almost taught young. If you say this, it's going to work. And so you just innately, that's how you learn. That's how and you if grow. you don't feel like the message is going well... You then go, you just revert back. Yeah, you go back because you go, okay, I can get them back in. I can get them Absolutely. back in. Absolutely. You know? And I think the struggle with that, to be quite frank, is that we don't create new thoughts. That's right. You're not challenged to think new thoughts. Yeah. Now, that, that, that was really in youth ministry days. But now today in L.A., mm-hmm. you, the challenge is to say something fresh and new in a new way. And so there is that you know, uh, desire. But for years, it wasn't even on the radar. No. And I think what's happened during this uh, quarantine mm where there's been a shift where everything's now on social media. And I think for the first week of the quarantine, I was on, I I did an Instagram video every single day. And then I did one once a week for the next three weeks. And then about two months ago, I went silent Mm. and stopped posting completely. Because one of the things I I, I saw was like, there's just so much noise. Mm. And now if your message is very similar to a hundred other people, Mm. it just all starts blending together. Right. So I, I, I thought, okay, I'm going to step out and have very targeted conversations and so that I'm not competing with the noise. I love that. And uh, Which is risky, right? Because if, yeah. you're, if you're not out there speaking, people forget who you are or, right. or you know, and, right. and you know, aren't, isn't everybody fighting for market share? And, sure. Right? You know, and but, that's, and, but again, I think that's why you've stayed relevant is because you're playing long game. And like you said, that short-sighted person that's in the immediacy trying to be relevant will not stay relevant. So I think one of the keys is to uh, not let being popular mm. be your due north. Yeah. And it, I mean, and I, I and I say that without judgment. If you do anything that's public, you want to be pop- popular. Sure. I mean, you don't want to be unpopular. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, what are you saying here? <laughs> and you, you don't want to be anonymous when you want to have influence. Right. And sure. so I'm not trying to diminish the importance or even the um, desire for influence. Right. I just think that you have to step back and go, what am I saying that maybe no one else is saying? Great. Or what am I saying in a way that no one else is saying it? It's great. Because you know, sometimes it's the same truth. It's just coming through a different perspective, and That's now great. it unwraps. Yep. Um, I, I don't know if you heard years ago, I, 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 um, I, I found this metaphor that became a metaphor for Mosaic called 52 hertz. Um, I, I study bizarre things all the time, <laughs> you, you know, and... Uh, and there, there's this one whale that's called the loneliest whale in the world. Mm. And um, scientists have never found a second whale of its kind. And, and if you know anything about whales, which I do not expect you need to, <laughs> uh, whales communicate through a frequency. I think it's around 40 hertz or something like that. And, and so they can hear that frequency and they speak in that frequency. This one whale speaks at 52 hertz. So even when whales are close to each other, they can't hear him. And so he's speaking at a frequency that no other whale can hear. Wow. And, he, and they're all speaking at a frequency he can't hear, so he doesn't ever find his tribe. Or if it's a whale, his pod. Right, as they call right, the whale right. pods. And, and when I saw that years ago, I thought, ah, oh, that's mosaic. Mm. Or in, in a personal way, that's me. Yeah. I, I'm, a, I'm a 52 hertz person, and I spent... A lot of my life feeling intensely lonely. Wow. And because I've wanted to fit into Christianity mm. so much, but I actually don't resonate with 
99.9% of Christianity. And I have to remind myself that we're all connected to Jesus and we're just working it out. Yep. You know, and but on on a on an intellectual level, on a human level, I have very little in common with Christianity. Wow. And uh, but I but I have a brotherhood with you. Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. You you feel that? I feel that from you. I can sense that, and I think that you know your story to me is very beautiful in the sense that your kids are a huge part of your return. Yeah. And I remember meeting you know Aaron in those New York days. I, I don't know if you remember the first time I ever met you was in New York with Joe Termini. Wow. And you were having lunch with Joe at the uh, the Mondrian. The Mondrian or the Mandrian? Right across from Joel's old apartment. Anyways, okay. I met you there years ago. And at that time, you were not leading Mosaic in this the way that you are now. And Yeah, when and you, that's when I was in the fashion and film industry more. And everything like yes, that. and I remember that. And mm-hmm. your kids being a huge part of your return. Yeah. I feel like from an outsider's viewpoint, your return, you had a different... Um, burden for the church, even at large, like you could sense that you were more into that small, even though it's only one percent that you relate with. You're like, I'm embracing my one percent, and I'm okay with the one percent. You could feel that in your leadership and what you were saying to the church at large. You've always been talking to the church, mm-hmm. it, but it felt like a pivot. And which leads me to my next question is, and you've already talked about isolation. You have created spiritual family. For people in Mexico City, mm-hmm. Seattle, Pasadena, Venice Beach, talk to me about the idea of spiritual family or, or tribe, mm-hmm. and yeah, that that the whale frequency mm-hmm. makes total sense to me, and yet you've created this tribe for people that resonate right. from Ecuador to Venice Beach. Yeah, I how mean, important I, is that? Uh, it's really important to me on a human level. When I came to LA um, 30 years ago, the, the construct I had in my mind was um, we tend to have a choice. You can be a pioneer or you can have community. And I said, I, I want to create a space, a space where people can live on the cutting edge and be together. So I was trying to create community for that radical 2%. Are you familiar with the, like the adopter categorization that talks about that? 2.4% of people are innovators. Wow. About, uh, actually 2.2% are innovators. Uh, 12.4 are called early adopters. Okay, yep. 34.1 are early majority, 34.1 are late majority, 12.4 are late adopters. I mean, uh, uh, um, yeah, late adopters, and then 2.2 are called uh, laggards. We call them nostalgics because it's nicer. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and a part of it for me is I realized that for whatever, um, However it happened, whether it was genetic or environmental, I'm in that 2.2%. Sure. And realizing that, that you only influence the group next to you. Mm. So most of my life needed to be given to that 2.2% or the 12.4% that are early adopters. Mm. And if I can focus on reaching innovators and influencing early adopters, no one may ever realize I was a part of it, but I'll have a huge impact on the future of Christianity, the future right. of the church. And, and so I just resolved that... Um, I may never be like hugely popular. Like my books may not ever sell millions and millions, but the right people will read them that will reshape the way right. they think about the future. Right. And so you have to sort of understand how God's created you and what your role in leadership and how you influence the world. And, uh, and, and, and then, yes, my kids pulled me back into church life. But I would say this, like when I became a follower of Jesus, I was all about the church. I fought for the church. I think what happened is by the time I was in my mid-30s, I realized... I'm fighting for the church, 
but the church sees that as me fighting against them. Wow. And I never wanted to be the enemy of the church. I mean, it was a strange thing to find websites where Christians decide they should kill me. It, it was it was a Jeez. really odd thing for my son to go to school every day and being told his dad's a heretic and sending the world to hell and how can he even bear the name McManus and, and to watch the psychological, emotional damage that Christians put on my kid. And, and that's a part of the reason I pulled away for six years was because yeah. it was just too harsh. And, and then I would struggle going, I would tell my wife, how is it that we're supposed to be the movement of Jesus and it's the most vitriol, unkind movement I've ever seen? And, and so I struggled with that. Sure. And, um, and I didn't want to become the same, so I didn't want to fight. Mm. And so I, I, I didn't give up on the church. I, 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 I tried to find a way to not be the enemy of the church yeah. while also trying advancing the message of Jesus. Mm. And so I thought, you know, if I go into the world of film and fashion and tech and other places, maybe my platforms won't see, be seen as adversarial. Right. It, it, you know, and it also made a place for my son and I to do life together, which I thought, there's a thousand pastors and a thousand speakers, but my son has one dad. Yep. So there was no choice in my mind which one I would choose. Wow. But when Aaron came back to me and sent me a text actually and said, Dad, if we make films and make bags, because we're making cool bags out of yeah. repurposed World War II material. And he goes, but we don't take Jesus to the world. We've accomplished nothing. Wow. When he sent me that, I thought, who stole his phone? <laughs> you know? And then my daughter coming back, she goes, I know what you're doing. I know you're tapping out. I know you're leaving all of this. And I, I've just, I've never had a need for fame, never. It's never been attractive to me. It's never been my ambition. And so you're right. These are things I've never pursued. Yeah. If anything, I'm self-destructive. Wow. Every time I become fairly influential or well-known, I disappear, like I've been doing the past several months. Right. <laughs> and, uh, it just it seems to be my my nature. Wow. And uh, a lot of people, you know, they have their own drugs of choice, I guess. But sure. mine was TripAdvisor. <laughs> and I would go to TripAdvisor every day to look wow. for a place in the world I could disappear and not be known. And and so I, I think I have like um, a longing for anonymity, and I feel a responsibility for influence. Wow. And I, I only can attribute that to meeting Jesus. Yeah. You know, because um, when I stop caring about the world, Jesus never stops caring about the world, yep. and he never stops bugging me about it. Right, right, right. Sure, <laughs> you know, sure. so anytime you want to have a conversation with God, he brings you back to the <laughs> right. human race. Right, right. And, and, and I think that's a part of what's happened that's affected Mosaic and shaped yeah. who we are as, as a church. I never started Mosaic to create a cool church. Yep. Never started Mosaic to be the most creative church in the world. Right. I started Mosaic because my friends who did not believe in Jesus did not have a place they could go that felt authentic and uh, um, realistic to them. Right. And, and our entire language is based on love. It's built yeah. on how would you communicate to someone you loved if you were desperately trying to save their life. Mm. Yeah, you feel that. Everything that you're saying, I, I, I would um, authentically feel that from your presence, your words, the history of your life. It's really refreshing. I think that, you know, uh, in the church world, probably one of the biggest problems is that we love the church more than the people or, or what the, the, the benefits, the blessings that come with it. But the people are the forgotten part. And I sense your love for humanity. And I'm not saying the people in your church. Most pastors, in my opinion, love their people. Yeah. Not people. <laughs> That's the hiccup. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. And so I, I find it very refreshing for anybody that loves humanity. What I can't figure out is how Christians are so mean. 
They are the <laughs> meanest people in the world. It's because you have the sense of rightness. Yeah. And I just got this long email that was sent to me by someone at Mosaic from someone that was at Mosaic 20 years ago. Sure, sure. That they needed to get to me because uh, I needed to cancel an episode from our, sh our show McManus because uh, I did not communicate uh, what he felt was needed to be said about pro-life, pro-choice debate. And I thought, how? And I sent an email back. Says, he must be exhausted being the guardian of the church. If he's, if he's trying to help every pastor in America and in every church in America, or is it just me? Is it right? And I think that there's this, uh, the sense of rightness is actually just a cover for arrogance. There you go. And when you actually come to the place in your life, you realize I've been wrong a lot. Mm. And, and I've been wrong a lot. Sure. It makes you a lot more gracious yep. about other people. Yes. And, and when you're really aware of your own shortcomings and failures, you're really slow to judge other people. Mm. It, it's this narcissistic sense that when I speak, it's God. And whatever I do is right. And, and then you, you find that that creates an environment for judgmentalism and for hate. And, um, and it, I, I just think it is such a bad reflection of who Jesus is. It really is. Fortunately, it's not just... Uh, Maybe unfortunately, it's it's not just exclusive to Christians. Right. Sure. I mean, with with everything with cancel culture and what's going on across social media and the way we're all trying to destroy each other. Yeah. I think it's a human condition, and, then there, are, and then there are Christians who have the same human condition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I, you would you would think though that um, yeah, I just it's sad. It really is sad because the love of Jesus should change our hearts. And, and that's one of the things I love about you. Thank you very much. And I, I was telling to Kevin, who was with me, I said when you meet Chad Beach. He will treat you in the same way he would treat someone who was famous. Okay. And he's, he's true who he is with every single person you'll ever meet because he just is who he is. And, and everyone I've ever known who has known you just always exudes such affection for you because of your, your affection for people, your love for people, your, your belief in people and how positive you are. Oh. Well, I was, you know, I grew up on a small island. At Whidbey Island, one of the San Juan Islands in Washington. Wow. My dad pastored a church of maybe five, six hundred people. And they were the kindest people to anyone and everyone. My mom was a high school school teacher. And she would love every kid in her class. My dad loved everyone in his church. And, and my house was always full of people. And it didn't matter what <laughs> their profession was. It could be a lawyer or a plumber. It didn't, it didn't matter. You were regarded as valuable and you mattered, and that was just what was. I wish my kids had experienced that. <laughs> right, you sure. Know, my my kids have had to work through the fact that I put them in a world where the world was unkind. Sure. Well, I always I think there's a difference between a pastor's kid mm -hmm. and a megachurch pastor's kid, mm -hmm. and you would be in a whole different category than mega megachurch is. You yeah. know, I got a church in Fort Lauderdale of X amount of people, yeah. and that's a that's that's a fishbowl. But your kids grew up in a global scale. That's just not very common, and to be exposed at that level, you know. But w and one of my questions I have, we can get to it right now. How did they come through that? Like they love Jesus, they do. They love people, and they love you. I always think the parent <laughs> that's winning is the one that their kids grow up and they want to be around. You know, their parents when they're older. You guys travel together, you work together, and you could tell it's sincere. How did you accomplish yeah, that? Yeah, we're, we're together when no one's watching. That's what I'm saying. It's like, <laughs> know, but, whatever you did, that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, well, I did a lot of things wrong, and they rose above it. 
<laughs> so, so I'm not going to take all the credit, you know. Some and, of it was their decision, you know. <laughs> and um, and and then we've had to like work through our battles and our challenges. And um, I think one difference for me is that I love being a parent. Yeah. I never saw being their dad as an obligation or an in, in, intrusion on my life. Right. Um, I just love being a parent. I love my kids, and uh, and I just love being with them. Awesome. I think the other thing is that. I actually took genuine interest in their interests. That's cool. And so, you know, I was writing music with Mariah when she was probably four or five years old. Wow. I, I think I recorded her first original song when she was probably six. You, you know, and and so we went on that journey together. Aaron and I, I, I think Aaron probably traveled to over 30 countries before he was 15. You, you know, and, and so we So you just, would just travel with just you and him? Oh, I was a terrible parent about school. I just took him out of school. They traveled. I think he was 10 years old. I took him out of sixth grade. And I, um, when we went to the bookstore. I gave him Catcher in the Rye. And uh, I said, there's a lot of profanity in here. I don't want to hear you using any of it. Uh, it didn't work. And, uh, <laughs> but I didn't know you read that in high school. I said, this is a book that changed my you know, life. And, and so I educated Aaron. I, said, I, didn't have a, I, didn't, I told him, I don't have any faith background. Mm. So I'm going to share with you every film, every book wow. that shaped my thinking as a human being. That's cool. And in a lot of ways, I treated him not just as my son, but as like my friend. Yep. And uh, and I was a parent when I needed to be a parent. I think parents make a mistake when they forget that they need to be a parent. Yep. You know, and and so I was definitely a parent, um, and that was a, a huge part of it. And then when they um, inevitably, children will disappoint their parents, mm. even if it's just on a Tuesday. Sure. You know, by not eating their dinner or throwing or whatever, eating sure. a dessert they're not supposed to eat. They'll do something. Yeah. You know, not going to sleep when they need right, to. Right, right, right. And, and if you overblow the disappointment, I think it really has a massive effect on their psyche. Mm. And um, I, I would always try to, like, distinguish between an action and a character. Mm. And so I would say, no, no, you should never tell someone they're a liar. You should just yeah. say, you lied. Yeah. It's okay to say you lied to me. Yeah. But you do not say you're a liar. Yeah. And, and so I think a huge part of it for me, because I never knew my real father and, you know, I'm, I'm an immigrant and I, I didn't even know my name. Wow. And, um, and so I always had an issue with identity and I thought, I'm going to make sure I don't speak a negative identity to my kids. And so then when they th went through hard times and, and Aaron definitely went through a much longer season of going through a hard time, um, I just never stopped loving him, being his dad, being there for him and, uh, and reoriented my whole life to try to make sure that um, he always knew he could come back to a safe place with me. Cool. And we're great friends. And, and I find a lot of like, <laughs> I mean, I know everyone's interesting, but, but it, it, sometimes it's harder to find interesting in a person. Sure. My kids are really interesting. Mm. Like I could talk to them for hours and never be bored. Wow. You know, they think about deep things. They think about politics and culture, and they, they think about ethics and morality. They, wow. they, they think about history and the future, and, and, and they're just really thoughtful. And I thought, oh, I'm so glad I raised interesting human beings. So awesome. if I did anything right, they don't listen to me, you know, because they're so opinionated. And right. They have their own views of everything. And I think even if they agree with me, they would disagree. <laughs> but, um, but I raised interesting people, yeah. which means we fight. Yeah, that's yeah. one of the things I love about you guys is, you know, even on your podcast, that there is that exchange and it's not toxic or unhealthy mm -hmm. or disrespectful, right. but it's a relationship. It is a friendship. I feel like a lot of parents where they get it wrong, 
uh, and I say this only because I worked with high schoolers for 15 years, so mm-hmm. I watched it happen, is a lot of parents get off the bus at 18. Yeah. Or they get or 22. Maybe they make it at 22. And then, you know, it's like, hey, we're joining the wine club or, we're, you know, we're doing, yeah. fill in the blank because we've been sacrificing for so long. But I find the parents that I respect and want to be like the most, like yourself, they just kept staying in relationship. Yeah, 18 to 28 was the most critical seasons of their lives. But I'm really glad I was there for them. Yeah. You, you know, and, and, and the parent and um, in their life. Um, yeah. So they're, they're, uh, they're amazing people. I love them. They're both, you know, they're both actively involved in Mosaic, you know, and, um, and they both have significant seasons where they do not want to be on staff. Wow. All the time. Wow. Like, and it's because I didn't raise them to want to be on staff. I didn't even want to be on staff. Right, 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 <laughs> you know? right, right. And so I always worked outside. I always made right. sure I had, I made all my living outside of the church. And so I, I almost ingrained that in them. So mm-hmm. they always feel like they've, they failed if they're not employed outside of the church. Wow. And I keep saying, no, you know, what you're doing is really noble. And, yep. and what you're doing, actually, no one can do the way you yep. do it. And so I almost having to, I have to rehire them almost every week. Right, right. <laughs> well, they're yeah. both so special and uniquely gifted. And of course, I'm a little bit partial to Mariah just because, uh, you know, we went on tour with your team. And oh, they were right. just yeah. Every night we would do a Q&A in every city we went to. And uh, Mariah and, you know, one of the other guys would take it with her and her and I, and we would just field questions. And every answer she gave was sincere insightful very kind and just you just feel the whole room just lean in a little yeah. it is truly amazing i want to talk to you and she has it um so i would think about you as a creative a brilliant thinker um obviously an author um but your gift to communicate is so special it is so unique and you, you've already referenced it you have just a gift to to speak, to to talk, to to create colorful words. When did you recognize that, and how did you improve that gift? Oh, thank you. And uh, yes, and, uh, but uh, um, I, I, that's such a hard answer, a question to answer in some ways because I think I have a value for words, which I think is what you notice with Mariah. She yep. has an economy of words, yep. and she doesn't want to use a word that's not necessary, and. Uh, I, I, to me, words are more valuable than money. They're more valuable than possessions. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so I, I do see words as an art form. And when I first started a lot of my public speaking, I much more saw myself as a poet than anything else. But if I could just kind of like go to the beginning, um, I, I had no particular speaking gifts. Like there, there is no evidence of any talent or gifting. My brother and I came to faith about the same time. He, I was the last one who came to faith, but he came right before me. Brilliant. Was an atheist. Uh, went and got his master's of theology. He's a brilliant guy. Um, but when he came to faith and I did, a year later, we both went forward in a church at the same time to say we're going to the ministry. Because we were always responding yes to whatever Jesus asked. Yeah, so yeah, you yeah, called yeah, us, yeah, we came. Yeah, yeah. And then we, uh, he went to seminary. I, I didn't go to college right away. I just floated around um, doing nothing. And because um, we graduated from high school at the same time. So now he was a year ahead of me, goes to seminary, then I go to seminary the next year, we go to different ones. Uh, I went as far west as I thought the gospel went. I didn't know Christianity was all over the world. So I said, what's the furthest west I could go? So I went to Texas because I actually, I literally thought that the gospel had not yet gone to California. I, I know, it's crazy. <laughs> and, uh, and but when we both went forward to say we were giving our lives to ministry, uh, my mom, who I love so dearly, she hugged my brother and said, 
we knew God was calling you to ministry. And then she turned to me afterwards and she literally said, but what in the world is God going to do with you? <laughs> now, she wasn't trying to be mean. She was like, right. she just, it just came out. Wow. You, you, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and I have an uncle who drove me from Orlando to North Carolina. I went to school at Chapel Hill. And he saw me 20 years later. He didn't know anything about where my life went or anything. And he goes, so do you speak now? And he didn't mean as a speaker. I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, I drove you from Orlando to North Carolina and you never said one word. And, and people don't realize that's how reclusive and introverted I was naturally as a human being. Wow. And um, we drove, Kim and I drove across Ireland one time um, 16 years ago. And after three days, she yelled, I can't do this anymore. And I said, what, what, our marriage? She goes, no, you haven't said a word in three days. And uh, I, I didn't even know I hadn't wow. said a word in three days. So I'm not a person that you would have said, oh, this guy has like a communication gift. Right. You would have said, he doesn't even have an interest in, in talking. <laughs> and, uh, in general. You know, is he going to say a word? <laughs> you know? and, uh, but what ended up happening is that right away, I was trying to connect to people who were outside of Christianity. Mm. And in the shower, when I was new in my faith, I would do debates and I would hear people grilling me with questions and I would answer all the questions in the shower. Jeez. And of atheists, agnostics, philosophers, you know, um, and because I, I was a philosophy major and so I was studying Socratic thought and um, I wrote a, a paper on Socratic thought and economic development. And so that's the world in which I was living. And now I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. Jeez. So I'm, I'm literally having these debates at the Pantheon. And, and I didn't realize it that my imagination was preparing me for public life. Wow. And because it was just me and all the people I saw in my imagination. And then little by little, uh, I would interact with people and, and people think, how's he so good at Q&A? Like, how can he be so spontaneous? It's because I already had that question in my imagination. Wow. And so it wasn't spontaneous. I'd already heard it. And, and I would grill myself with every question that I was afraid to hear. And, and, and that's actually what prepared me to be a speaker. Wow. And then I started um, speaking on the streets. So I'd take my guitar, I'd go speak and uh, walk into a restaurant. Say, can I do a concert? And I'd sing, and then I'd talk to everybody in the restaurant. And I'd, I'd go to the Vucaray, to the Mardi Gras every year, and take my guitar out there, sing on street corners. When I had a crowd, I would start talking to them. And so I, I started um, a, a congregation, a community um, in downtown Fort Worth that was all homeless people, people trapped in prostitution, drugs, homelessness. And I had to figure out how to hold their attention in an open-air arena with airplanes flying, cars going by. And, and so it was like a, a stand-up comedy routine. I would literally absorb everything that was going on around me as I was speaking. I didn't know I was preaching. Mm. I had no, if I thought that, I wouldn't have done it. Sure. And then I went to this pastor that, was, uh, that I was going to church at, and I said, hey, there's this little like, congregation that needs a pastor. Well, it's not even a congregation. They want to be a church. Yeah. And uh, there's like 10 people. <laughs> and do you think I could do that? And he looked at me and goes, how many people? I said, maybe 10. He goes, yeah, you could probably do that. And this is the guy who knew me. Wow. You, you know, and so I didn't have any affirmation from this. Jeez. And so, you know, you love basketball. I love basketball. And so this was now in like, this was like in the hood. This was wow. like intense. It was the most violent area in the United States. Highest crime rate, wow. highest murder rate in America at that time. Jeez. And so I would take my basketball into the projects. And I, they'd send someone out to play one-on-one. -on -one, and if I, you know, held my own, they would let me stay. You, you know, and that's the way I would break into different drug cartels and stuff and 
And, uh, and all of my speaking was in that kind of environment. Wow. I would just sit up in the middle of the projects with people looking outside the balconies and I would talk to them. And so people say, how did you learn how to communicate? I said, I, I went everywhere no one wanted to hear. Right, right. <laughs> and uh, I had to earn every second, Jeez. not just to speak, but to live. Yep. And, uh, and that shaped me as a communicator. Jeez. And, um, and I, didn't, I didn't know that there was a career in speaking or that pastoring was a career or anything like that. And, uh, and so I never spoke to more than... 50 people for up to like the age of 29. Jeez. Like all my crowds were small crowds, spontaneous crowds, street crowds. And I was doing this English as a second language for undocumented aliens. Wow. And, uh, and so we would have all these undocumented aliens who spoke Spanish and in between I would do a little like short talk about Jesus. And I didn't know this connected to something else that was about to happen. I was 29 years old. Um, my wife was serving at this event with 20,000 people at Reunion Arena where the Dallas, Dallas Mavericks yeah. play basketball. I didn't want to go, vol I volunteer every year because she worked there, but I said, I don't want to go, I'm exhausted. And she goes, you're going to go. And I said, I'm not going to go. And she goes, you are going to go, you committed. So I've done this for the last several years. I hold a flashlight and I point in a direction. They can get a trained monkey to do that. I mean, I was like, you know, not in the I'm best space, you know? And she goes, you're going to go because you gave your word and it's my job and you're going to be breaking your word to my people. So I didn't even take a shower, I didn't change clothes. I had, yeah, I went, you know, I, I went to this event. I didn't bring my Bible because all I needed was a flashlight. 20,000 people show up and the speaker doesn't show up. And, um, and then they start calling all the other entourage speakers and they couldn't find what they needed. And then the main speaker they wanted was on a golf course. And so he wasn't answering his phone. And the guy in charge of the event who did not like me. And um, because one day he saw me in blue jeans and tennis shoes and he said, son, when you're in a room full of preachers, you need to respect the environment, wear a suit. And I'm a 28 year old punk kid with, you know, uh, unrefined yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, uh, etiquette. And I looked at him and I said, you know, I wore a suit the first day for you guys, but I'm going back into the real world and I think I know how to reach the real world better than you do. And, and he was a director of evangelism for the state of Texas. <laughs> right, right, sure. <laughs> so we did not have a good relationship. Right. That guy comes up to me and he says, Erwin, I think, uh, Erwin, the Lord wants you to speak tonight. And I thought when he said it, he was joking. He was mocking me like a Billy Graham didn't show up, you yeah, know. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. So I started laughing hysterically. <laughs> and I wasn't, wasn't going to let him catch me. Right, right, you right, know? right. And he grabbed me and he started shaking. He goes, Erwin, the Lord wants you to speak tonight. I still didn't believe him the second time. Third time, he just started shaking me hard, saying, the Lord wants you to preach tonight. And I said, well, I'll need a Bible. And he goes, we'll get you a translation. And then uh, uh, I said, how soon? He goes, 30 minutes. And so I go into this little room, I get on my face, and I weep uncontrollably from fear. Wow. Like I've never spoken to maybe more than 100 people, 200 people, and now it's 20,000 people with 30 minutes notice. Jeez. And that was like the moment where my life kind of altered. Uh, the moment went well, and God sure. moved in a really powerful way. And and it was interesting because after it was over, because you, you know that's kind of kind of dream come true kind of moment. Yeah, sure. And and it was really beautiful. I'm so grateful and so honored I got to do it. But by the next day, I was like, is that all there is? Right. Like I, I didn't have this overwhelming filming feeling of I have to do this forever. Yeah. yeah. What 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 would get my adrenaline going is when I was walking into a room with a drug cartel surrounding it with Uzi machine guns and going in the middle to meet with the family who ran that entire 
coast to coast cartel and sure. talking to them about Jesus and no one in the world saw me there. Yeah. And people were putting money on which day I would be killed. And for me, that was like, that was the most, ex that was exhilarating. That was real life. Speaking to 20,000 Christians yeah. didn't have the same level of, of danger and right. you know, efficacy for me. Um, but suddenly I was a speaker. Mm. And I asked that man later because I was shocked that he picked me. Right. And, and it says something about him and a lot less about <laughs> me. I said, why did you pick me? Because he had like 20 guys in suits. Sure. Waiting to preach. Sure, it, it, would have given anything to yeah. have done that, and would probably done better. You, you know, and 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 he said, "You don't know this, but I walked into your little church to see what was going on in South Dallas. I heard you speaking in Spanish to all these people who are undocumented aliens. It was I couldn't understand a word, but I could feel what was happening in the room. Wow. And you know, and that's why I, I look at my life, Chad. I've never been the first pick. Mm. I was always the backup. Mm. You, you know, I, uh, but Tom Brady was back up, you know, six round draft pick. I was not the person for that moment. God had to remove everybody so I could speak. Wow. And I can tell you throughout my life, I replaced someone. The first time I spoke at the Willow Creek Leadership Summit, right? yeah. everybody's like dreamed as a speaker to go. Uh, it's because A.R. Bernard got sick. Wow. At like five in the morning, I get a call or something from, no, six in the morning from Jimmy Otta saying, Erwin, you're here in town, right? And I go, yeah. And he goes, Hey, um, A.R. Bernard can't speak at nine. Will you speak? And I said, uh, okay. He goes, oh, did you bring your, your notes with you for your sermons? And I go, who carries notes for sermons? I've never written a word down. Really. And, uh, and, and, he, and he goes, well, you have this talk I've heard. Uh, it's called The Barbarian Way. It was before it was a book. Wow. And Andy Stanley told him, I heard this talk called The Barbarian Way, and you should have it at the summit one day. So here they have a cancellation. So I speak because Air Bernard didn't show up. I, I'm telling you, Chad, like Jeez. there are other people who are so important and so successful and so, I don't know, historic that people invite them ahead of time. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I, I spoke at what color conference with, at Hillsong, you know, the woman's conference, the biggest conference like, yeah, on yeah, the planet, yeah, right? Yeah. Because someone else canceled. They, you know, <laughs> Ryan calls me up and goes, hey, my brother. Hey, <laughs> yeah. You know, I want to ask you, you know, a favor and Bobby. And like it was the next week. You know, so I'm, I'm getting on a plane. And, and that, that's why in my mind, um, my posture for whatever God has done. See, I love the fact that people think I'm a good communicator because hmm. there's, there is no validation that I, I would ever be a good communicator. Wow. And I love the fact that no one picked me, that it was almost as if God had to keep moving people out of the way just to put me on a platform amazing. and to have a particular message given. And, and the last time I spoke at, you know, at um, one of the last times I spoke at Willow, I didn't speak the message I wanted to speak. I had a message. They had me set up to speak Chasing Daylight. And I thought I could sell so many books. Do you ever think like that? Yeah, oh, you know, I don't want to think like that. But yeah, the but moment I thought, here we go. It's 100,000 people. If yeah, I just yeah. talk, on, they set me up for Chasing Daylight. And while I'm there, God just tells me to speak a different message. Wow. And I knew it was really controversial, and I knew it would get me uninvited for a long time because I did a message like it at Catalyst, and I was blackballed for eight Jeez. years. Like, listen, and, and my wife's like, why are you so nervous? And it's because I was shaking, and I was like saying to God, I don't want to do this message. I, I, and I'm just coming back after all these years of being disappearing and right. disappearing. And, and I felt like God said, I don't really care if people like you. Wow. I mean, it was like such a direct, like, internal narrative. I don't Jeez. care if people like you. I care if you speak about what I tell you to speak about. So I decided that my life was destined to occasional unpopularity, or maybe often. Yeah. 
But here's the beautiful thing is that if you're true to what God speaks to you, eventually a generation will come that needs that message. Yep. And I realized, oh, I was giving my message to your parents' generation, but it wasn't for their generation, it was for your generation. Wow, I believe it. And, and so I think it's ironic now, you know, and um, that at you know, 62 years old, I'm speaking at the events with the other guys who are 26 and 32, right, and, right, right, right. you know, and, uh, and, and frankly, Mosaic's message is still fresher and newer. A hundred percent. And always on the pulse. And, and, and it's what I'm trying desperately. I, I'm trying to be an irritant in, in your life and in like Rich's life yeah, and yeah. all these guys, you know, because I'm going, you're so talented. You have intrinsically way more talent than I've ever had. And you just, it, it's like learning a new sport. You're already like one of the world's best speakers to Christians. And I just want you to spend a few decades of your life becoming one of the world's best speakers to an unbelieving world. That's it. Because they need you. That is the challenge. That is, yeah. And I feel that. I, I, I think that's the challenge that we have to accept. I think that's somewhat... Uh, Judah would be really in our ears saying that message. And I think that that's what the church has to face. Either we're going to come to gr- grips with the fact that we just keep recycling each other's people mm-hmm. and that we're not reaching lost people, or we're just going to keep doing the same old same old yeah and but the statistics show we're not reaching lost people yeah but i think that you are the challenge you are the contrast you are the voice crying out in the wilderness to the church hey guys i'm out here reaching humans you guys want to try and join me yeah but to me it's like i, I remember years ago this guy who had a contract with Capitol records i i used to write all the worship music pretty much in mosaic. Wow. Wait, wait, wait before we let it go public. And uh, you know, it was so bad. And I mean, I'm just ashamed. But, but you know, this guy came up to me and he goes, your music sucks. You know? It's like, and uh, I, you know, he goes, I, I, could, I could write better music with my eyes closed. And, yeah. and I looked at him, I said, because um, I knew him, you know, he had this six-figure contract with Capitol Records. Yeah. And I said, you're like a 10-figured piano player mocking a two-fingered piano player. Right. And I said, but you know what? At least I'm playing the piano with my two fingers. Why don't you get off your butt and write some better worship music? Jeez. And he did. He wrote one song. It was amazing. So much better wow. than everything I wrote. But he never did wow. another one. And uh, because God will use the person with no fingers and just playing with his nubs yep. than the person who has 10 fingers but won't get into the game. There you go. And, and so from my end, I'm looking at it going, you guys are so intrinsically talented mm. because it, you ever notice like you end up being really good at whatever your dad did in a lot of ways like yeah. you know i mean george bush becomes a president why because his dad was a president sure, <laughs> you know, sure, you, know sure. you have these world-class athletes so you realize oh his father his mother was a world-class Steph athlete Curry can shoot wow oh, so good his dad yeah yeah you know, wow, there's Dell. And, and and you realize that there's like almost like a generational blessing well everybody talks Absolutely. about like the negative side but i think there's like this generational blessing that passes oh, yeah. on and you have that and and so I'm like, you guys have such a head start, and so I'm just trying to get you to to shift a little bit of your time and energy to go. You have to find a way to take all of that raw talent you have mm. and find ways how to reach the person furthest. You, you, you know, yeah. And and that's been like the thing for us. Like when we we're creating different mediums. Like you're doing this podcast and you're doing a leadership podcast, but I can, mine and Aaron's is more just like a cultural podcast, probably. Yeah. You, you know, and. But we're just, I would get so much criticism, like when, we, when I had my fashion companies, Christians constantly going, why don't you talk about Jesus? Why aren't you putting Bible verses on your stuff? And yeah. I'm like, 
Why are you selling your stuff for so much money? I mean, I had a bag that probably sold for $1,500. You know why? Because it was worth 3000 <laughs> Right, right, right. No, no. I got an answer for you. No, no. no you know, you have, you have some clothes or things you make. And, and the first thing Christians do is they go, hey, wait a minute, where's the gospel? And what I found is that everyone who gets mad at you because you're not always talking about Jesus, they never talk about Jesus. Yep. And, uh, and so they want, to, uh, they want you to be their surrogate. Totally. And, and I, have, wow. I have no discomfort having conversations about things in life without actually talking about my faith, hmm. realizing that that's created an environment that moves people to conversations about faith. Right. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Because everything I say is colored by my faith because I'm yeah. a person of faith. Yeah, you know? of course. And, but like I, I've spoken at business conferences and, and, uh, and people say, well, yeah, but you didn't preach Jesus. I'm going, it, it was a business conference. Did you go to that conference to preach Jesus? Yeah. Or, or, you know, or did you go to the conference to learn how to be a better entrepreneur? Right, exactly. And, and I think sometimes we don't realize that, um, that there's a process of bringing people into faith. Mm. And if everyone is just at the close, yeah. then no one is opening it up. Right. <laughs> and I feel like a huge part of my role in the kingdom is to open people up for Jesus. Yeah. So that other people who are better in the middle and maybe better at the close yeah. can actually bring those people to faith all the way through. I love that. You know, one of the things that I did, it, they just shut it down. But every Saturday night, I'd take my laptop to this bar near my house. And they had great Wi-Fi and, you know, tons of sports games going on. Mm -hmm. And I'd uh, finish up my message on Saturday nights. And I would think, will this work with this room? Mm. You know, because if they can't really hear it, love it, receive it, and if it's not... And I learned that from Bill Hybels. Mm -hmm. Years ago, I heard him say, every time he prepares, he sits with eight people in his office. He would sit with, you know, a plumber, a lawyer, and... You, different you know professions mm -hmm. but i would sit in the bar going i've got to i can't just speak to christians i've got to find a way to reinvent to get good with you know the lost people and that's an interesting contrast because like i remember once uh years ago bill called like five or six of us from around the country and he wanted to create like an alliance and he went around the room and he said, you know, this is what Willow Creek does well. And if we do this alliance, they looked at, you know, Andy Stanley, this is what North Point does well. And they looked at Ed Young, this is what, um, uh, you know, what, what you guys do well. And they looked at, the, this is what you guys do well. And then he looked at, this is what you guys do well. And they looked at me, he goes, McManus, I don't really know what, was, what, what you do. I just know you're supposed to be in this room. And I told him, I said, uh, the reason you don't know what we do is because we do the same thing you do for the future. And, and what sometimes it's harder to see the thing that actually is you, but not of the same generation or not of the same sure. dimension. Yep. And so when you mention that thing, that, that's the thing is that like Bill Hybels translated how to communicate the gospel for the world in which he lived. Mm -hmm. And then everyone translates what he did as a method mm -hmm. rather than you know, as a mindset. Right. And um, the language of someone in Chicago is so different than someone in L.A. Yeah. So different someone in D.C. or New York or Miami. And each one of us, we really have to be cultural translators. That's it. You know, and so you have to know the world in which you're in. And you have to actually love that world. Love. Like, you know, I hear so many people want to come to Hollywood to save Hollywood. I'm going, no, actually, I, I, I love my city. Yeah. You know, I mean, Hollywood, let's be honest, uh, Hollywood's kind of ghetto. I yeah, mean, you, yeah. you, you don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All these people, why are they taking their vacation to come to Hollywood? <laughs> Have you walked through Hollywood? Yeah, it's, it's pretty nasty, you know. <laughs> but as a concept, as an idea, sure, as sure. an industry, sure. like, I, 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 I love these people. Oh. And, and I'm one of them. 
Yep. I just happen to know Jesus and have chosen my platform for creativity to be through the church. I love that. And, but, uh, but I'm not different than them in that sense. Yeah. And, and I think it's really important for us to see ourselves as translators to a particular culture. I believe that. And, and how do we work that through and how do we listen to them? And, and, and if I go to another part of the world, I have to take time listening before I actually start speaking. Totally. And, and it doesn't take long, to be honest with you. Like if you listen well, you learn really fast. But I feel like every every time you go to Ecuador, El Salvador, wherever you go, you're out in the city, you're getting coffee, you're you can see you from, again, these are my impressions from yeah. social media, but I can sense you're acclimating, you're getting you're tasting the culture. Absolutely. So you can really communicate effectively. Yeah, usually I'll walk up to twenty miles the first day. And I won't let anybody stay with me. I won't let anybody drive with me. I just go. And, and it's funny because I went to Bogota. They were like, no, you can't walk the streets by yourself. And I find that people a lot of times when they live in a, in a city, they're so afraid to let you go. Sure. And, and uh, you know, and there have been lots of times when Aaron was younger, I would call him and say, hey, I'm walking the streets of, you know, tell yeah. the city. I'd said, I mean, you know, I'm in Damascus. And if I disappear... You know, I just want to let you know the last place I am so they can look for me here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I've known a lot of times I've been in places where I shouldn't be. Right, you, right, you know? right, right. But I want to feel the city and taste it and smell sure. it and connect to it. And uh, I found that many times I'll go to a city and I'll know that city better than people with their all their lives. Wow. Because they've never taken time to know their city. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you for the life that you have lived and are living the voice that you are to the future, the voice that you are today. We honor you, respect what you've built. I love your children. I love your family. I love Mosaic. And thank you so much for spending time today. I could listen to you talk for many more hours, but it's just a treat to have you here today. Thank you so much. Man, I'm so glad to be with you. And you guys, uh, we, the city's gotten better since it's always come. So and since you've decided to make this your home. And we're really glad you're here. Last question, real quick. Who's winning the NBA championship? Well, I knew that was going to be your question. I, I, I got to know. What do you call it? It's not really a question. It's, it's, not. it's just a statement. It's done. It's the Clippers. The first one that they're ever going to win. You think it's the bubble year is the Clippers year. Yeah. Italy would be the Clippers or someone we didn't expect. I agree with that. Like the, Houston could get hot and take this thing. Yeah. Ex- except that they've never visited defense. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and their center is P.J. Tucker. Yeah, it, it's, it's a hard concept for them. Houston's playing small ball. Yep. And Clippers are taller playing small ball. Yeah, they are. With more talent, better defense. That is true. And more chemistry. Regardless, (laughs) at this point, I don't even care. All that matters is we've got something to watch at night. I do too. And we can watch that actually all day. I mean, today the schedule is like from noon to 10 p.m. Yeah. And I will say, if the Lakers win the championship, I'm going to celebrate like an Angelino. And if the Celtics come, I'm going to celebrate the Celtics. And, you know, honestly, I'm just going to celebrate whoever can overcome all of this hardship yes. and, and all the complexity of it. Whoever gets to the end and wins this thing, they really deserve yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because it's the greatest AAU tournament that's ever been played. Absolutely. We are watching AAU basketball, <laughs> and I love it. I think the guys love it. They all come watch each other. Yeah, they do. I think they're like, hey, this is how we grew up. This is like middle school and high school all over again. And I told, I told my wife, I said, if they open up the bubble for fans who stay for three months, I'm <laughs> going. <laughs> hey, Seattle guy, Mexico guy, you're all preaching. I'll be in Orlando. Yeah, yeah that's good. Well, thanks so much hey, for thank coming. Hey, thank you so on. much. Love yeah. you. All right, love you too, bro. Right. 